before we start today's episode, don't forget to jump on to runitup.com.au, subscribe and get 10% off your next purchase. And don't forget to check us out on our Instagram page, that's runitupofficial. Check us out, guys. My guest in the podcast today is one of Australia's top jiu-jitsu practitioners. He not only competes at one of the highest levels in the world, he also has extensive knowledge about the martial art of Brazilian jiu-jitsu. He is a two-time Pan-Pacific no-gi champion and a three-time AGC champion. My guest today is Jeremy Skinner. I might just start recording it now. All right, cool. We're going to get sweat to get started? Yep. All right, cool. Thanks for coming on, Jeremy. Um, just for those people who don't particularly know who you are, about yourself. So uh, I'm a, a jiu-jitsu competitor and coach. Um, I am a brown belt under Lachlan Giles and Craig Jones. Um, so, you know, like competing out of absolute MMA, St. Kilda. At the moment, though, I'm in Sydney, um, just with uh, the state of COVID in the world, uh, I ended up just staying here when I came up to visit my parents uh, after the initial lockdown. And then when Melbourne went into lockdown the second time, I just ended up staying in Sydney. So, yeah. Sounds good. How did you come about into, into the jiu-jitsu world? Um, so I started jiu-jitsu when I was 16. Um, I, my mum my had got me to do like uh, karate when I was a teenager, um, more just like, like sort of like, a, like an off-season sort of sport to do. So that way I was just sort of doing something year-round. Um, and when we'd, uh, we'd moved to Newcastle, um, they, they got me uh, doing, uh, like my parents had got me doing like karate there. And I, I saw, you know, uh, just one day there was like a jiu-jitsu class going on and I just sort of like off to the side, like they, they had jiu-jitsu uh, at that karate dojo just like a couple of times a week, um, sort of like off in the side room. And I saw that and I thought, oh, that looks pretty cool. Like I, I, I was familiar with our, uh, with, with MMA, um, and so I saw, uh, saw the jiu-jitsu. I thought that was kind of cool, and like, yeah, just fell in love with it. Early on, I think I had sort of like small aspirations in regards to like MMA, but like very quickly, I, it just you know that sort of disappeared, and I, I just focused on the jiu-jitsu and you know dropped the karate and everything too. <laughs> what was about jiu-jitsu that kind of inter- interested you more rather than like striking sports and that? Sure. Um. So so. I mean, it's not to say that there isn't a there isn't an aspect of problem solving and striking. Um, I I I found that you know uh, growing up like very much into to video games, playing you know Call of Duty, different things like that. Still am. Um, I, I found almost Jiu Jitsu was like you know like comparable in terms of uh, that that ability, of, like, you know that 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 problem solving, like you know the rapid problem solving and. Uh, I, I didn't feel like that was the same with karate. Doing doing karate felt a lot more like, okay, like this is the action, just do this, just copy what they're doing. Um, I really enjoyed the, you know, the rolling component of jujitsu where there's all these problems to solve. And it's a sport that's still evolving. Like, like I, I think a lot of traditional karate, they, they have, you know, their, their carters and things worked out. Um, there's not anything about it that really evolves. You have like a set curriculum and that's about it. And there's not really any new techniques to introduce or innovate. I mean, that doesn't mean that that's not happening in like yeah. MMA and, and striking in MMA, for example, but at least in like traditional karate, that's that's certainly not the case. Yeah. Like you said about the um, problem solving, when you hear a lot of jujitsu like instructors and high level people talk, that's all they sort of circle back to, kind of like that high level problem solving, which... Funny enough, yeah. I found it, it, 
it's why you're here. Yeah. It's why you have like someone like Joe Rogan. He's talking about like, you know, you watch high level jujitsu and like the sort of athletes you see in high level jujitsu versus high level MMA can be, can be very, very different. There's exceptions of like guys like Ryan Hall, for example, but for the most part, a lot of the high level guys in jujitsu are, you know, essentially like the, the nerds that essentially stopped getting bullied. Like, yeah. like that's what they look like or potentially even the nerds that still get bullied, but yeah, exactly. So like, I like, find not, like this yeah there's not too many like what looks like tough guys in in like you know high level jiu-jitsu i mean like even if you look at the meows for example like they certainly are tough guys like they they suffer so much damage to their limbs in competition and they just wear yeah. it and like they just push through it but they don't look like your traditional tough guy that you would see in like mma for example or even just like you know like boxing anything like yeah, that exactly i find it even just um because I started playing chess about a year or two ago. And I find even playing chess and jiu-jitsu like kind of related with a bit of that problem-solving aspect. It's like yeah. you got to stay a little bit ahead and you can kind of see when someone is starting to slowly develop their attacks against you and whatnot, which is really, yeah. really cool to see as well. And um, Yeah, um, there's yeah. a good analogy for that, actually. I, I think there was a, there's a podcast from like maybe five or six years ago, Eddie Cummings talking about that, where like, you know, jujitsu is almost like playing like, you know, chess against like a monkey. Like you can teach the monkey chess, but at some stage he might just like take all the pieces and just like swipe yeah. them off the board and then you've got to restart. Yeah. Because like you can, when, when I particularly roll with like, say the instructors, the black belts and that, you can kind of feel when something's coming on and it's like, you can't really do too much about it because it's just so much like constant yeah. pressure and it's just kind of like, you see the like inevitable submission coming, which is like pretty funny as well, which I guess in striking. Similar to almost like a lot of those like end game positions in chest where, where like you end up in like these, these you know, this sort of like this, this set of positions where, uh, you know, like uh, there is like a series of steps that you can take where as long as you follow those steps and like you, you don't make any mistakes, like like the game's over. Yeah. Um, yeah. Like I, I think you can see similar things like that in jiu-jitsu where at a certain point, like, like, and that's where I think maybe it, there's, there's that divide in uh, between, you know, uh, jiu-jitsu and chess is that really, like, uh, you can have, like, a major reset from a lot of these end-game positions. Like, there is actually a way out. Typically, when you get to an end-game position in chess, there's no suddenly, like, recovering all your pieces miraculously and being yeah. able to suddenly, you know, put them in an end-game position. Like, like, it doesn't really change back and forth like that. But the overall process from, like, like you know, that idea of, you know, uh, from openings to mid-game to end-game is... is that exists in jiu-jitsu it's just it's a less linear yeah exactly um so with your particular skill set you are very dominant with your leg lock positions and um entanglements how did how did becoming um versed in that leg lock position come about for you rather than stick to traditional kind of like upper body only a few straight ankle lock type of more like traditional jiu-jitsu so so when i um so i i predominantly came up uh training around the time that i was i was really getting into leg locks it would have been 2015 so before that um i, I trained probably about 50 50 gi no gi um you know like like i really liked uh attacking ankle locks um in you know both gi and no gi as well as like particularly in the gi uh looking like like attacking omoplatas um around i think it was around 2015 you know i i had a competition coming up where um, it, it was a grappling industries event and, you know, they, they were one of the first comps that was, uh, allow, you know, having widespread leg lock usage. You had like events like uh, ADCC, for example, EBI that had, 
uh, heel hooks uh, involved and, you know, like a lot less restrictions on submissions. But in terms of, uh, you know, uh, these competitions that are available to like a wider market, uh, grappling industries, I think, was really the first in that regard. Um, and so, so, so we had a grappling industries coming up and, and I saw for the advanced division that they, they had heel hooks in there. And I, I didn't know, I didn't know a whole lot about heel hooks. Like I, I didn't roll them regularly. I'd learned about heel hooks at white belt. You know, I'd learned like I said, yeah. take down a white belt. I'd learn an inside heel hook, but that was really um, my only exposure to it uh, up until that point. So I wasn't rolling with them regularly. So when I saw this competition was coming up, I had to go and ask Luke, I was like, Oh, like, I know we don't, uh, you know, like, we don't roll with our heel hooks in the gym, but I've got this competition coming up. Um, do you mind if I start trying to practice uh, some heel hooks? And and he said, you know, uh, essentially he said, yeah, like work on them, drill them, things like that. Um, probably limit, uh, you know, rolling with the heel hooks with uh, to you know a particular training partner of mine, so uh, Kieran Harris. So Kieran, I believe, was a brown belt at the time. Um, very very soon getting his black belt, and I was a blue belt at the time. And so Kieran, you know, he he spent a lot of time, particularly on uh, his straight ankle lock. And so with this competition coming up, I just got a lot of training time in with my uh, my teammate Kieran um, to just sort of like at least start understanding heel hooks and getting exposed to them. And that was really my first exposure to it. And really what I was doing to try and study these heel hook positions was at the time, right around the same time as this competition was uh, EBI 4, where Eddie Cummings had won all four of his matches by heel hook. I, I think he'd won um, maybe, I think he'd won two matches by outside heel hook and two matches by inside heel hook. Um, I think he like his matches against, yeah, like, uh, you know, uh, Barry Yoshida, uh, Joe Soto in the final, um, Kevin Burbridge and uh, one other gentleman, I can't remember his name, but, but he heel-hooked all four of his opponents in the lead-up. And so that was when I think, you know, around the time that I had this competition, there was also like a bit of an explosion in popularity of like the submission-only game and as well as like the, uh, the leg lock games, uh, you know, where Eddie Cummings, you know, showing how uh, dominant this game can be and how also, you know, uh, unprepared like the rest of the jiu-jitsu world was for this style of game. So yeah. that's really like sort of like like a couple of things coincided there that led to like me, you know, really uh, honing in on the leg lock game. Did you get most of your uh, techniques from like videos or did you just see people kind of do it in other competitions or? Um, I've always had a, a, like even from white belt days, like my approach has always been, uh, to, you know, trying to practice techniques is, is focusing on watching competition footage. So so I think like instructionals are good. Um, assuming that you know like like if the the instructional is from a an active competitor yeah. or you know in the like in the case of say someone like john danaher someone that's at least got students that are doing the techniques that he's teaching and getting um, results as well exactly and then getting the results uh, as a result of those techniques but mainly um uh mainly though like just from competition footage because either guys like leave things out of their instructionals or maybe like you know they they physically know, like they intuitively know what they do, but maybe they, they don't do a very good, uh, you know, they don't necessarily do a good job of articulating it. Yeah, yeah. So, so mainly focusing on, on, on competition footage to study these things. Like even at White Belt, like I was studying the Meow Brothers, like just looking at what they do. So then the same thing with the leg box is just looking at what's successful in competition. And I think as well, um, at the time, even if you wanted to study heel hooks, um, the approach that you saw the Henzo Gracie team taking to leg locks was not something that was accessible, like in any instructionals. Like it, it was really like a lot of uh, innovations, like the entries to saddle that Eddie was using, 
um, you know, playing this uh, this outside, outside Ashigarami position. A lot of the the heel hooks that were available on tape was more uh, almost like that Russian style of leg lock game where it's just like, you know, your classic reaping heel hooks. Yeah. Um, not making a major, like, like, and even then, like not making a major distinction between an inside and an outside heel, like not talking about the differences between the two, not talking about what's really happening in like the positional, um, the positional differences with the leg configuration. It was just some sort of leg entanglement. Doesn't matter what, grab a heel hook. Uh, what kind of like future trends are coming out of these like leg entanglements? Are there any like new um, kind of entries or entanglements that are people slowly we're getting? Seeing, so, so, so what we're seeing, and I, and I think you see this with sort of any time, even like as an individual, like where people start to really like take a deep dive into any sort of game. I, I think what we're seeing is how leg locks are getting integrated um, into the rest of jujitsu uh, a bit more effectively. So, so for a long time now, um, I think because there's been, you know, this major renaissance uh, in leg locks and this boom in the leg lock game that we saw uh, still like a pretty major divide between, you know, someone that's like a, like a leg locker and then someone that's just a general grappler. So, so what we're seeing now is, um, those lines blur where, you know, it's an, it's an essential skill to know how to defend leg locks. And we're seeing also specialized leg lock defenses and how that's sort of becoming uh, sort of normalized in like jujitsu curriculum. And so I think what the trend we're seeing now with the leg locks is how it's actually starting to fit into the rest of the game. So we're seeing, you know, how we can use leg locks to create like back exposure and things like that. Yeah. Um, and not even necessarily just from like, you know, oh, I'm attacking a leg lock and like, this is my opportunity to start attacking, you know, like the back when they start turning and hiding that back, just even using leg entanglements to force back exposure. And, and, and not just back exposure, yeah. but like seeing how like we can use it to sort of bridge from like attacking the legs to the upper body um, and how we can use that threat almost like a boxing style of, you know, like punch high, punch low um, to create these opportunities. Do you reckon you start to see a lot more people who participate in just that leg lock game and then jump into the um, gay rule settings and just you reckon you will start to see a lot more leg lock dominant um, gay personnel? So, 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 so gay is a funny one. Um, generally speaking uh, in the gay, you, you don't see as many submissions. Um, the rule sets don't really reward it so much. Um, as as well as I think uh, the, the problem is, is like the, the, the problem is, is like, like, let's say, for example, you, you allowed heel hooks in a, in the gi. The, the rule sets are still very, very limited in terms of like what you could do with a leg entanglement, not even just reaping, but that idea of being able to like, you know, manipulate a leg to create that internal rotation. Um, I think the straight footlock has its place in the gi, like you're seeing how that fits in with the rest of the Berenbolo game. Um, but I think, you know, even like knee bars and toe holds, things like that, I, I, I think like if they, they were effective in the gi, we'd see that already. But that's not necessarily true because then, you know, that's almost like a, like a logical fallacy there. Like just because people aren't doing it doesn't necessarily mean that they shouldn't be doing it. Yeah. Um, so that's a tough one. I, I, I'm probably not the, the person to answer that question when it comes to the gi. Yeah, of course. Do you reckon in future years to come, there'll be just gyms that solely focus on doing leg locks instead of focusing on traditional jujitsu? Um, I, I don't think so. Um, Cause I think one of the, the, the reason why, um, you know, heel hooks had its boom was uh, 
taking almost a, a, an old school school approach to leg locks, this idea of like using control to lead to submission. Like that's the, like one of, you know, like the, the founding principles of jujitsu almost. Um, so I think what we see is, you know, like, like schools that like, if they took like that approach where it's like, oh, let's just do leg locks. I, I think like you, you'd see very little success coming from them. Um, I, yeah, I, I think what you'd see is like all schools overall adding in uh, leg locks in some capacity or leg lock defense into like, you know, their no-gi curriculums, uh, curriculums. But I don't think you're going to see uh, leg locks become that specialized. I think if we were going to see that, we would have seen that probably over the last five years. Um, but I think now because, uh, you know, defenses to these attacks has now become so widespread that it's going to be very difficult to be effective with just leg locks. You need to have a, an ability to attack the entire body. Um, and be less predictable. Yeah. Um, in saying that, do you reckon learning leg lock defences and escapes are pro- more priority than just attacking or rather um, learning how to attack sure. and then so, know so, what position you're in? Sure. So so the, there's two different ways that you can like, like talk about it because we can talk about like just defence in a general sense. Um, there's um, some interesting... Um, discussions from John Danaher recently talking about that. And, and I completely agree with him. It's, uh, I think it's a, a broader discussion that's been brought up a few times now over the last couple of years um, is this idea of that, you know, uh, most uh, place, uh, you know, most practitioners of jujitsu and most schools of jujitsu aren't teaching defense as uh, a separate set of techniques. Like, you know, we're, we're seeing defense get taught in a way of, you know, essentially, either random movements that might address a specific attack and not like a general set of principles from a lot of these attacking positions, like, you know, a lot from a lot of these defensive positions and not having uh, a serious plan um, for escaping and, you know, having a direction for our escape. So I think that applies to leg locks as well, where we need to have, um, you know, a specific method of escaping from these leg lock positions, both early defenses to submissions and late defenses to submissions, but also early and late defenses to these, uh, these dominant positions. So, you know, um, we have like this idea of, say, guard retention, for example, which would be, an, uh, you know, an example of almost um, an early side control escape. But then we have, you know, like framing, like, like elbow escapes from bottom side control. That will be an example of like a late escape to side control. And then we can take the same approach to, uh, you know, to leg blocks where we, we need to have, you know, uh, you know uh, these early defenses to hilts where we, we start defending from the position as early as possible, but also like um, escapes from, you know, uh, these submissions. Like, and I'm talking like, like escapes from these fully locked submissions. We, we need to have some sort of direction to go in. Um, from all of these sort of positions. And so I, I think like, you know, you can talk about that and, and, and heel hooks actually, I think exposes that idea um, about broader jujitsu, but I think like what needs to get talked about is defense overall in jujitsu. Yeah, of course, because you can, you can kind of say if you know a little bit more about a certain position or like a strong leg lock position, people will just, you know, they'll tap in fear of, they don't know what to do or they just, they're just that, like they hit a brick wall that they just do not know where to turn, what to like address first and whatnot as well, which is kind of yeah, exactly. interesting to see as so, well. And, and you saw this for a long time as well. Like, um, and, and this is what I mean by, you know, uh, the leg lock sort of exposing this idea is uh, when the, the Henzo Gracie team was, uh, you know, it's particularly the data, her desk, desk squad was like having its rise. One of their, their initial goals was um, to submit, um, other prominent leg lockers. So we're, um, we're, we're talking Imanari, um, Riley Bodycomb, um, 
they didn't submit Ryan Hall, but I believe he was someone that they were trying to set a matchup with, but like Paul Harris, for example. So, so guys that were, were um, having a lot of success in competition with leg locks. And so what they showed um, with that was, is that, you know, we, we have these people with us, like, you know, uh, high level leg lock games for the time, um, not having uh, an effective defensive plan. Uh, when when put in those def- uh, those positions, and I think that's one of those things where people often say, you know, oh, you need to know the offense to know the defense, and I think that's true, but knowing the offense isn't enough to understand the defense. What you need to do is be able to take the offense, look at how they're exploiting you, and understanding what's the underlying principle behind the attack, and then the idea is to uh, to develop escapes and work on escapes um, separate to that, rather than simply playing a game of denial. Like, you know, this idea of like, you want to hyperextend my arm, so I need to keep my arm bent. Like, yes, that's true. But um, then what happens is, is, you know, if you, if we're say you're in a dominant position and you don't start moving, I need to have a plan of what to do to create movement so I can create an opportunity to escape rather than just waiting for the opportunity to arise. Yeah, well said. You've competed on multiple uh, grappling events and in like international, uh, international competitions as well. Have you ever came across athletes who were maybe under the influence of um, PEDs or some sort of performance enhancing um, substance? I, I might've, um, it, it's entirely possible. Like you know, drug testing in jujitsu is, I mean, there is some, but for all intents and purposes, non-existent. Um, so it's possibly come up. Um, I, there's no names that I can think of where I'd be like, yeah, I, I have a strong suspicion of this person. Yeah. Like, like there's people that get like popped for drugs in like all different sports, that, like for, for, you know, performance enhancing drugs um, in other sports. And, you know, they, they, they quote unquote, like, like pass the eye test. So, so someone could be on something and I wouldn't know. Um, like there might be people where, you know, they're, they're on performance enhancing drugs, but, you know, uh, they're using it just to train jujitsu and get some extra rounds in like, you know, multiple times a day. They might not necessarily, you know, be this, uh, this jacked looking monster of a human. Yeah. Um, so it's so really tough to say, like, it's possible. Um, I've got like no way of knowing. Uh, it's yeah. Yeah. Cause um, for people who don't know, they actually, they don't test um, for any performance enhancers in any of the comps. Uh, mostly because it's, yeah. I think the only expensive. competition I know of that does drug testing is um, in the IBJJF world championship black belt division they, they test the guys on the podium. So, and then I think they do some random drug testing of the black belt division, but, but for the most part, they're testing, like, I think that's like, you know, like say 10 weight divisions at black belt. Like yeah. They're, they're testing 30 guys in a competition that's got like, you know, hundreds and thousands of people competing in it. And plus lead up events to it as well. Yeah, like, like this, well, they don't even test in the lead up events. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Like, so, and we're talking about this as one event in every single event in jujitsu possible they're testing about 30 guys like you know and so that means essentially they're testing like 30 guys in the sport overall once a year do you reckon that it's not really a such a big issue if you're going against someone who is on peds because it's more like about the skill how skilled someone is so so i see so so we can compare it to other sports um so one of the things we see in the other sports is like this it's almost like a it's a back and forth argument about whether or not drug testing in other sports is actually effective, or it's simply down to random chance. Like um, you see plenty of guys passing like drug tests in USADA to suddenly get caught one random time. 
Um, there might be guys that aren't getting caught uh, that are in USADA. And then, you know, it's a matter of, then there's the argument, it's a ma simply a matter of money. Like if you've got enough money to beat the drug test, like essentially they only are able to test for a specific set number of drugs based on like, you know, their budget at the time and like how advanced the testing is. If someone's got enough money, they could potentially be on something, you know, they, people say like, you know, like a designer drug. So simply like, you know, if, if you've got enough money, you can get ahead of the testing game consistently. Yeah. And then you've also got this idea of like random drug testing, like how effective that is, how invasive is it? You know, a guy's able to, you know, beat the drug test by knowing when the drug testing is going to be. Like, uh, you know, for example, like the Russians are going to be, uh, to my understanding, I think the Russians are out of the next Olympic due to a state-sponsored uh, drug testing program. Yeah. Um, you see in cycling, for example, like, you know, that, that documentary about, like, you know, uh, that, that documentary Icarus. Yeah. And how, or even, you know, what went on with... um forgetting the cyclist name the famous cycler. Lance. um yeah exactly with lance like for example like he essentially got caught because uh you know essentially uh other other cyclists that got caught got um you know basically ratted out on him and, and i say ratted out not in like a you know because he shouldn't have been on drugs. Like, yeah. like, it's like you know, it's against the rules of the sport. But essentially, like, all these other guys are getting away with the testing. Um, he got, you know, he got away with using drugs and managed to, you know, pass the testing. And it wouldn't surprise me in a lot of, in a lot of other sports if people are still passing the drug testing. So I think it's, it's, a, it's hard to say. Like, I, I don't know enough about it. And I think even if, like, you know, I was doing study about, like, you know, actually trying to read, like, studies about it, you might not really know unless you're one of these athletes who's actually like either is or is not passing the test. Yeah. So uh, you can go both ways on it as to whether or not it's realistically effective or simply a random inconvenience for certain athletes. Yeah. Cause um, just for yourself, when you compete, there's usually, you know, a lot, probably some sort of sum of prize money. Does it, yeah. does it make, um, would it make you feel a little bit more down or like frustrated if, someone who is on P like um, substances and they're winning and they're winning all these like prize money. And that's kind of like your somewhat income as well. Um, I, so maybe if like, like we were talking like at a, in a very high level sport, like say something like the UFC where a lot of these fighters, their, their primary income is from the UFC. Um, but I think if you're doing jujitsu and like you're, for most competitors in jiu-jitsu, like, like the, the competition isn't their primary income. And also on top of that, if you're getting into jiu-jitsu for the money, like you pick the wrong sport. I think honestly, if you're picking like sports to be your primary income, like, like that's not a white, or like, like if you're, you're intending to go into sports with like the intention of become like getting rich, like you're on the wrong career path. Like, like if money's your focus, like you need to pick a different career. Yeah. Cause it is quite. But so personally, it doesn't make me disappointed. Um, it's just, it's one of the things I know what I'm in for. I know that some athletes could be like on drugs, like, and there's not really any testing for it. Like, like for me to take that risk, like financially, like if I'm relying on like that money to pay my rent, like I've made, like I've made the wrong call. Yeah. Do you reckon there should be say a clean and a um, PED bracket? Or do you reckon there might be a bit of fallback from well I, I think what would happen is essentially they'd have a clean bracket and then they have the bracket for the guys that got caught. Yeah. Like, reckon, I think that's really what would happen. Yeah. Do you reckon there'll be more of, like, a people will be more upset from, like, previous winners and they'll probably just start calling out everyone and kind of throw everything into turmoil? Um, it could potentially. It'd be interesting. Like, you can go different ways on, on 
like opinions of like performance enhancing drugs. Like like a lot of people like I I haven't you know studied like moral philosophy or anything like that. And I personally like I don't really have too much of an opinion on it. But like there's an interesting discussion around like whether or not it is actually wrong to be taking these drugs. Um, because then, because it's like, you know, it, because it, it changes with different sports, I'd say like, like, you know, for example, like if you're taking performance enhancing drugs and we're talking about like a striking based sport where, you know, the, the fact that you're taking performance enhancing drugs is like going to seriously impact your opponent and like their, their, their health and their well-being. Yeah. This is jujitsu. It's not quite the same. Like, like it's, it has less of an impact on the other person in terms of at least like their long-term health. And more of like down to a personal decision on how it's going to affect your long-term health. Now, I could be totally wrong in that regard, but I just think there's an interesting discussion there that I really don't know the answer to. Yeah, because I was thinking, like in um, Pride, where they in their contracts they weren't actually testing. Like apparently, I think they were explicitly told that they weren't going to be tested. Yeah, but do you reckon it could help jujitsu when there's like a like a steroid-like um, competition where you just see absolute freaks and it will draw more people in? Um. It could potentially. Um, I'm not sure because I, it's one of those things where, like, there, there was, um, I think he, uh, The Undertaker, Mark Calloway, was recently on Joe Rogan and he was talking about that. Like, people want to watch, like, people almost want to watch these things to see the freak show in a way. Yeah. Like, there's almost a discussion about, like, I've seen discussions before, like, like years and years ago on, like, different podcasts. It's like, should we have the steroid Olympics? Like, like, like because then then we're basically testing like what is physically possible for the human race to achieve with all of its advantages yeah like we like and that's just interesting in itself i don't necessarily think like it's a good idea or it's right but i i think these things are interesting yeah because i'll definitely watch some six foot eight 600 pound muscle behemoth just like you you're not watching sports to see the things that you can do. You're watching sports to see like, you know, these, these incredible human beings achieve like, you know, like great feats of humanity. Yeah. There to be entertained, not to be shit at tears. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Like, cause otherwise like we, I just go down and I watch like the local, like, you know, track race or whatever, like, and watch like normal people do like a, like a running race. Yeah, exactly. But it's like, no, like people want to watch the Olympics where you're seeing like literally the very best. And like, these are people where it's like, you know, like, that have abilities that even like a regular person on performance enhancing drugs could not achieve. Like, like you're talking about like genetic specimens potentially combined with performance enhancing drugs. Exactly. It just, it wouldn't get any better. I reckon. Yeah, exactly. Like <laughs> As, um, on the topic of competing that, what kind of uh, mindset do you go through before competition? What do you have like a few affirmations that you say to yourself or is it more like, I'm just going to get out there. It's going to, not really think overthink what I'm about to do. I'm probably like the you know uh, I I'm certainly an overthinker. Um, I yeah no I, I like I'm I'm never thinking oh, I'm gonna go out here and have fun like like to me it is like a test like I am looking to I'm I'm aiming for like a technical achievement um, and that's about it like I'm going out there to to test my skill sets um i'm not like you know like like my aims aren't necessarily to go like test my athleticism things like that like like i i and you know so basically like w- with that in mind then like i the affirmation that i have is that you know i i believe that i've prepared enough technically um to win the match uh you know i i'm fortunate to get to train with some of the best people uh, 
on the planet. And I also know that like personally, like I put a lot of time and preparation into like understanding Jiu-Jitsu, understanding my opponent, understanding my own technique, the limitations of both. Um, and so therefore I, I have confidence in my own preparation. Um, yeah. It's it, like, I'm like, for me, like mindset and competition, I'm relative, like I'm relatively simple. Like I don't go through a lot of like emotional ups and downs in regards to it leading up to it. Um, I, like when I was younger, um, I used to, you know, be maybe not more emotional about competition, but a lot more nervous, um, you know, dealing with adrenaline, things like that. I think now I don't even get an adrenaline dump when I compete. Yeah. Uh, I, I feel pretty clear headed when I compete. Yeah. That's really important when you mentioned, um, the first few times I competed as well, you got that huge nerve, like all those nerves come out, all that adrenaline after that first match. And like all my, you know, forearms were just so seized up because you never wanted to let go of a certain position because you're in fear of losing. And all my like forearms just filled with like lactic acid and blood. I couldn't like flex my hand. It was like something I never yeah. ever felt before. It was crazy. <laughs> and I think um, I, was, I had someone in my guard and I was in there for so like so long. I think it was like five, six minutes. And by the time I, uh, we got off to walk off the mat, my kind of like foot went numb as I was just like yep. scraped across the mat as well. And it felt, it felt almost like I snapped my ankle in half. It was like ridiculous. Um, I think one of the things that actually contributes to that preparation for competition is, is the way people train as well. Like, for example, like you, you're talking about like people like burning their forearms out. Like, and I think that's, uh, that's pretty common because like, let's say for example, um, in rolling, like, like people when they're rolling, they, they, they undervalue, um, you know, uh, the consequences of having their own guard passed. And so, you know, like they might be rolling and they, they have someone pass their guard and they think, oh, well, I'll, I'll let them recover. Like, I'll, like I'll, I'll recover my guard afterwards and then I'll have a second go or, you know, oh, it doesn't matter because then I'll have my guard again next roll. Yeah. Um, and then what happens is, is they go and compete and they realize, oh, I can't let my guard get past. And therefore, they, they become very, very inefficient with their own technique. And they're, they're holding on to grips um, for dear life because they, they don't have like the, say, the, and this isn't like a comment about you, like you either. Like I, I definitely yeah. had this, like where it's like, you know, you don't have the technical ability to retain your guard. And therefore, you're relying on, you know, using muscles and not wanting to release anything because you realize that you don't have the guard retention skills to keep your guard. Yeah. Um, and so that's where I think in preparation for competitions, positional training is really important. And like, you know, uh, being able to see things situation by situation, because I think what happens is like, say, for example, someone, you know, they're, they're, they're practicing like their guard and like, um, you know, they go, oh, well, they'll pass my guard, but then I'll recover and off my recovery, I generally get to a pretty good position. Um, and then like, they're not thinking about winning every single situation. They're, they're thinking just about the role as a whole. And I think that's the wrong way to prepare for competition. I, I, Lachlan, uh, my coach Lachlan Giles has talked about this, is that, you know, if you was going to pick like one way to train uh, forever in jujitsu, it would just be positional training. So instead of like, you know, worrying about rolling or worrying about drilling, like if you're going to pick one way that's going to prepare you for effective competition performance, positional training would be it. And I think you see that pretty consistently um, with a lot of uh, high-level teams. Uh, like, say, for example, like the Hendo Gracie team, um, they, they do a lot of positional training and they have, like, a lot of key positions that they, they prepare from. Yeah, because there's nothing worse being in competition and then things aren't going your way and that kind of – your mind kind of goes to, like, panic mode and you just start to – Exactly. Start to do, like, irrational things and stupid things that – Exactly. Don't really help either. 
And I think, and, and that's what I mean by you know confidence in preparation as well. Like like knowing that you prepared for those sort of situations and knowing that you prepared to to be put under that pressure because you've trained in the right way goes a long way towards having a clear head and having confidence for competition. Yeah, because when you're just rolling normally at um you know your local Dewey gym, you're just like, all right, I got smoked that first five minutes. I'll just wait for the next roll and then it kind of just resets but in competition it's more like they're not really round robin competitions they're more like one and done pay 80 bucks and then exactly for one match is kind of kind of disappointing for most people <laughs> yeah exactly exactly does it make um does it make a difference when there's prize money involved for you does it make things a little bit more piped up a little bit more on edge no uh, it doesn't like for me like whether like whether there's an audience there or not whether there's you know prize money involved whether it's you know i guess like like the stakes don't I, I don't find the stakes affect me that much yeah um yeah like, like yeah like i i just when i'm at competition like like particularly the moment i step on the mat like my my whole world shrinks down to that moment and i and i think like you know same with what we're talking about just then with competition like you know this idea of like performance comes from the ability to isolate yourself to the now um like being able to focus on like say for example i'm playing like a half guard and like i'm just thinking about just that situation and i'm not thinking about what's going to happen in the next position i'm not thinking about the role overall I, i'm just focused on like winning that scenario i think it's the same thing with performance in a general sense where you know what's going to get you the prize money or the attention is you know like worrying about it isn't going to increase your performance if anything like it's actually going to have like an impact on your performance so if you want to get the prize money um, you want to get the fame or what, not that I'd really call like, you know, there's much fame in jujitsu, but like if, yeah. if you want to have like the success and things like that, the best thing you can do is not actually concerning yourself with it and simply focusing on the technical, uh, your technical performance in match. Yeah, exactly. So when things aren't really going your way in competition or in training, how do you overcome those kind of like adversity, adversity points? Um, I, I think so. So we talked about, you know, uh, not letting someone pass your guard, um, you know, like that way you're not burning yourself out. Um, then on top of that, like, and this is where, um, you know, having enough time in your training schedule, like is really important. And, and it goes back as well to what we just talked about before defense is like, say someone passes my guard is that I also know that I put the time in on like, you know, not just defending my guard, getting passed, but also recovering my guard. And like, also, you know, like something Dana has talked about recently and there's something I actually spent um, particularly a lot of time last year on is um, recovering my guard into offensive positions. Like, like, you know, recently in class, like we've covered, uh, uh, you know, guard retention, but guard retention straight into offensive positions. Um, then you can apply the same thing where, you know, your guard recovery directly into offensive positions and trying to identify where those key positions are. I think there's um, yeah, a good discussion from John Danaher recently, just talking about that um, in like what he calls like the new wave of jujitsu. Yeah. Does that um does that really come about when you deal with like a major loss as well? Yeah, um, losses is tougher because it's like there's nothing you can do to change the result at that stage. If you look at um like someone like Craig, like like uh, Craig Jones, he's had like plenty of losses in his career. But if you just move on to the next thing straight away and try and just like compete as soon as possible, the world doesn't remember it. Yeah. Generally, people that are fans of you very quickly forget your losses and they just remember your wins. The yeah. only people that remember your losses are the people that didn't like you anyway. <laughs> and like, like another... it, it, it's simply true. Like, 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 you know, like no one remembers that Craig lost to like Kine and Duarte. They just think about like the EBI run where like 
Like, no one even talks about the fact that Craig lost to Gordon Ryan. They talk about the fact that he broke his arm. Yeah, exactly. Like Craig lost that match, but that's not the part that people remember about it. Yeah, they just remember that um, overtime. Those overtime Yeah, sessions. exactly. Like, no one talks about it ADCC, the fact that, like, you know, Lachlan Giles got submitted by Gordon Ryan again, like, like, like in the semifinals. People talk about the fact that he heel-hooked his first two opponents and then heel-hooked Muhammad Ali in the, in the bronze medal match. Yeah. Like, you know, the, the most exciting thing that happened at ADCC in 2019 was a guy that came third. Exactly. It was no like one the, cares about the fact that, you know, like Gordon Ryan beat him. They, 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 they care about Lachlan's wins. Exactly. Inst, like instant famous, pretty much from that. Yeah, exactly. So, so it's one of those things where I think people, like people, like, you know, people are, you know, going to easily forget the losses. They, like, if they're a fan of, like, you know, Kynan, for example, they'll, they'll, like, you know, they'll remember that he beat Craig Jones. But people that are a fan of Craig Jones aren't going to suddenly be like, I'm not a fan of this guy anymore because he lost to Kynan. They're going to be like, they're going to forget about that and be like, oh, he nearly beat Gordon Ryan. He hooked his first three opponents in 15 seconds. Like, they, they're going to remember the cool things that someone did. Exactly. And what I like about um, jujitsu as well, especially with um, smooth comp, you know, like where you go to register comps and that, and then they have like your well, they have everyone's profile, it actually doesn't bring up any of the losses. Like, no one really talks about yeah. the your win or loss record. It's more like your performance, really, which is really, really, really cool, I think, because with something like boxing and striking, that's kind of like a, you know, they state it out after every, before and after every match, really. Yeah. And I think... Oh, um, for sure, exactly. I think that can kind of, like, mess with a few people's heads as well. They're more like, this guy is yeah. 10 and 1, but, like, in Dewey, it's like, you can't really find out how many losses this person has unless you're kind of following them yeah. extensively. And, and I think the, the focus on like, like win and loss records is, is like, like, like the value of like a win and loss is a little bit like sort of like overstated in terms of the records. Cause for example, like really all that matters with like, you know, like someone's ability is like their last couple of matches and who they were against. Cause like someone could have lost say four matches in a row, but it's like, you know, it's to like, just like Mikey Musameki, you know, Paolo Miao, Gianni Grippo, like, like it could be like, you know, they could have lost like three in a row to those guys, but it's like, those are the best guys on the planet. Yeah. That guy that lost is still potentially very, very good at jujitsu. Um, and then like, you know, say for example, and you'll see this with like, like I think Keenan Cornelius has talked about this as, you know, he lost majority of his matches right up until late purple belt. And that's when he started winning. But it's like, so it means like, you know, by the time he got to black belt, you could have looked at his win-loss record and it might've been like 50-50, for example. He could have had like equal number of wins and losses. But it's like, it, it's a matter of, you know, the grappler he is that day, not the grappler he was five years ago. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So I think even like, uh, you'll see Gordon talk about this with like, say, Nicky Ryan, his brother, is that Nicky should be going out and getting as much experience as possible and competing as much as possible rather than worrying about like, you know, what's his overall record? It's like, let's get the, like, get the experience, like as much experience as you can before Black Belt. Um, and, you know, like, just don't worry so much about like the exact wins and losses at like the lower belts because like, no, like long-term people don't remember it. So you might as well go gain the experience. Like worry about who the grappler you're going to be in like, you know, five or 10 years. Yeah, exactly. So uh, staying on the topic of like competing at, what is your, what is your drive behind constantly competing and wanting to keep getting better? Like, what do you do, what you do? So, so I, I enjoy jujitsu for the technical aspect of it. I'm, I'm not into it for a workout. I'm not into it because I, I strict, like, it, like it's nice to win competition, but I'm not competing to win necessarily. Um, I, I'm competing to be able to, well, I mean, like, 
I'm, I'm not competing for the feeling of winning or to be like, yes, I won. I, I'm, I'm competing to test my technical knowledge. Like I, my goal is to, you know, like uh, I talked about this recently is that, you know, it, it's just a direction to put my training into it's, it's a, it's an opportunity to test the techniques that I know um, it gives them like a direction. It gives them some focus um, as well as it just helps me prove that like what I like, you know, like it just, it, it helps me sort of like trial the techniques I'm working on because really like I, I train jujitsu for, for, you know, for the test, like, you know, just to nerd out on the technique essentially. Like I like sharing technique with people. I like learning technique from people. Um, and I just think comp competition is just a way to overall like uh, use it as a proving ground for what we know. Yeah, exactly. And it's really interesting when you go up against someone and they might be a little bit better than you in some particular area. And then you both kind of like share that information, share a bit of knowledge to like make each yeah, other exactly. better, which I think is really, it makes it more enjoyable as well, especially when you're training at a gym where it's more like everyone yeah, absolutely. is, everyone's more inclined to share. Like there's with Jiu-Jitsu, like there's not a lot of, I feel like there's not a lot of ego well, there's such a low level of yeah. ego amongst everyone. Yeah, exactly. Like I, I had a match against Cade Rotulo uh, in the 2019 and I lost that match. But afterwards, like I was just like, I was like, show me what you were doing from this position. Like, like that was really fascinating. Like I want, I just wanted to understand um, what he did from those positions to set up certain attacks. Cause I thought it was just really, really interesting. Like, like, you know, the, like people often say like, are you the winner you learn? But I think learning is something that you have to do separately. Like learning is like something that you've got to, you know, you've actually got to hunt down that opportunity to learn. Like that was, a, and you should also actually loot, like learn from the matches you won. But so say, for example, I lost that match and I could have just gone, oh, well, on to the next one. But I, I wanted to just go like talk to him and be like, oh, what were you doing from this position? Like, like, like that, that, that setup that you did there was really interesting. The way you were gripping from this position, I thought was interesting because it, um, it totally changed the opportunities for you and as well as what my defensive uh, choices were. Yeah, exactly. Because um, for me coming up, playing a lot of um, basketball, more like a whole lot of team sports, not so much individual sports. Like you can get, you can get a lot of people kind of bitching and whining about what they kind of want. And then it kind of messes up the whole team dynamic and everyone yeah. kind of gets grouped off kind of everyone gets a little bit more yeah. isolated because it's exactly like um, team dynamic. Yeah, exactly. Like with team dynamics, I think, I think it might've been Jocko Willink that talked about this is that one of the, like, like obviously like, you know, um, if for your teammates, you want someone that's, you know, like someone that you trust and also someone that is like highly skilled. But if you were going to pick someone that was like, you know, low skill, um, like they could either be low skilled or, you know, like, like low trust, they'd rather pick someone that's low skill and high trust rather than yeah. high skill and low trust. Like you want yeah. someone that you can trust outside of training. Um, and that's what makes it big. Like, like at least I, I believe this is Jocko that was saying that is like, at least for the, uh, the Navy SEALs, that's something they care more about. Um, with a team dynamic is the ability to trust the people you're with. Yeah, exactly. Because you're, if you always get that person who's willing to work as hard as they can, but they're not as talented, you're always going to get pretty solid yeah. results, like an incline of yeah. performance. Oh, for sure. There's, um, there's like a, like Will Smith has even talked about that. I think it actually gets included in this highlight video that gets shared around everywhere as, you know, like, like there's plenty of people that are talented, but like, you know, really being skilled is about like just putting, you know, hours and hours and hours into it. And like, I've even seen that with people that I went to school with, for example, where I remember, um, like I remember being in high school, for example, and there was this one kid who was just like, just absolutely gifted, but just a complete, um, you know, like, just like, you know, uh, 
sort of fucked off a bit in class. Like you, yeah. you just like, and, and then eventually like you, you never learn the, like, you know, discipline. And I think that's what's really impressive about like the Miao brothers, for example, is uh, they, I, I mean, like there's a lot of people in this sport that are disciplined, but they really, I think, push the idea of, you know, what would be, you know, normally speaking, like an unremarkable person and how far discipline can seriously take those people. Yeah, exactly. And also, you know, with like jujitsu, and I guess those individual sports, you kind of, well, more, more particularly like combat sports, you kind of, you can kind of work on something by yourself or what you see on YouTube and you can do it at yeah. training and the coach won't actually get too mad at you if you like stuff it up or it didn't quite work too Unless well. Unless you train at a cult. <laughs> yeah, exactly. As opposed to when I was playing basketball, it was more like, don't, don't you worry about like what you want to learn. It's more like what the team, what the team needs to win. And it kind of like yeah. fucks me up. Well, fuck me up a little bit because it's like well, I'm doing all this work, but it's not translating into the team. It's not getting like the results yeah. and the progression I want, which was yeah super frustrating. You're even starting to see that in jujitsu to a degree, where you know, um, say for example, like like me for example, like like my so so you know uh, my special specialization I'd say would be um uh, you know like leg lock like like leg locks and leg entanglements um. And so the, you know, one of the things that I like to have in a training partner is someone that's got like a, like a certain proficiency of leg lock defense, because like, and, and like, like that's at least for me personally, um, like, so it's that way it gives me an opportunity to work on um, really specific things and have like a, a reasonable understanding of reactions. Like, you know, if like, uh, like some teammate where I get to a leg entanglement and they just try and spin out immediately and expose their own heel, like that's just not good practice for me. Yeah. Because they're, they're essentially giving me the complete wrong reaction and making it easier for me to submit them. I want someone that I can, you know, I can practice with and get like the best reactions possible. Um, and then ideally, you know, then the same thing for that same person that has the bad defensive reaction, they should want to have someone that has good defensive reactions so they can work on their own leg locks. And then similarly speaking, they want to actually have someone that has good leg lock offense so they can work on, you know, good leg lock defense. Yeah, exactly. So, so there is like, I think you see that to a degree with uh, jujitsu in terms of, uh, you know, having like a team dynamic. I think that's probably a little bit more emergent now than uh, than what it would have been maybe like 10 years ago in jujitsu. You're starting to see a little bit more of a team aspect in what is, you know, normally an individual sport. Yeah, especially with, um, what's a few gyms? Um, Gavalo's gym, Altos, they got like yeah. the same, to have like almost like family family dynamic too, which is pretty, it's pretty cool to see when they hand out like the team yeah. trophies and that and they have, they're all, they're all in that circle dancing yeah. and shit. It's pretty, it is pretty cool to see. Yeah. And it, like, like another example is like the AOJ team. They have like their own uh, particular style of like jiu-jitsu that they use. And, you know, because they're getting to practice it against other people that play that game, it just means that suddenly, you know, you, you have like a, a think tank um, of, you know, uh, jiu-jitsu technique like that you know the greatest like like you generally find that um a group of people working on one task has a an exponential increase in the ability to like develop something rather than one person operating by themselves so so i think what you'll see in jiu-jitsu is that same thing and i think we actually like what led to the rise of leg locks was exactly that was like you know a small group of people working together rather than what you typically see before that was individuals that were affected at leg locks where we we saw more of like a yeah, exactly that, like a think tank developing skill set. Yeah, yeah. Um, so being a somewhat professional athlete, like recovery is like super important. What kind of methods work best for you when you come to recover? Sure. Um, so 
so at the moment, like I, for the last couple of months, I've been using uh, this whoop strap just like more to focus on looking at um, how I'm sleeping. Um, at the moment, I'm also starting to you know get more into to like uh, injury rehab and things like that, and also uh, ideally uh, injury prehab. So so the goal would be you know to start doing some more lifting um, just to work on you know things like shoulder mobility, hip mobility, like hip strength and. Uh, you know, uh, like, like joint stabilization yeah. and things like that. So, so that's more of a goal that's coming up um, in the future. Um, but in terms of like, even like what I'm doing now, uh, you know, I, I, one of the big things for me has always been sleep. Like I, I really prioritize making sure I get like a quality amount of sleep every single night. So, you know, uh, melatonin, um, you know, uh, like trying to have like a, like a better wind down period. One of my, my teammates, uh, uh, JT, who runs the, uh, he helps run the, uh, the, the Bulletproof at BJJ. He runs that with another guy called Joey. Um, he, they're both really, really big on, you know, making sure you have like a proper recovery period after training. So having like, you know, a full wind down, um, making sure that you're yeah. waking up and starting your day the right ways. But even um, one of the big things I, I focus on is also diet. So, so I'm a vegetarian, um, but over the last about like month or two, I've been uh, shuffling my diet around, adding meat back in. Um, uh, just to see how it's affecting my ability to recover from certain injuries, just because there's studies on, uh, you know, vegetarians and vegans where they're not supplementing certain things properly. And so long-term yeah. they're, they're suffering greater, greater injuries. Um, and so, so just trying to explore that a little bit and, and understand my body a little bit more, but um, I'm just, yeah, trying to make sure I understand better what I'm putting in my body. So that way I'm, I'm getting a better, better performance. And that's mainly to do with, you know, just like injury prevention and like my you know, making sure I'm not just racking up all these injuries that aren't healing. Yeah, that's what I I mostly do as well. Like just trying to prevent injury more so than rather than become someone who's, you know, just jacked and thick muscles and more about like kind of like sustainability, like that long term period, which I kind mm -hmm. of I kind of mix up my training every so often as well. So before I was doing uh, for like for weight training, it was more like um, low sets, but really high reps, but with like low weights. And then more recently, it's more like trying to go a little bit heavier to see how that goes along with, yeah, you know, talking about diet, uh, more so like being more accountable, being more focused on maybe cutting out certain things. So I feel like I kind of cut out like yeah. full, like full cream milk and that, and then yeah. cut that out for a bit, then try to like uh, bring it back in. My body did not like react yeah. too well at all. <laughs> like I was having stomach cramps and it was just, it was just almost like, I want to like throw up all the time, but um, yeah, exactly. Do you do you tend to like focus on new techniques to recover? Um, I, I play around, like like I try and look at as much as I can, like to understand it. Like yeah, like like just just I, I try like if there's new things coming out. Um, the problem is is that it seems like over time as well, like medicines almost become like politicized. Yeah. So so it's hard to really put a lot of stock in new things that come about um like it's yeah it, it's just hard to hard to like really um take some new things seriously only because like there, there's so many different people now that are trying to basically sell like a new health product and like they're they're diverging like they're, they're they're moving away from what the research is actually saying so that way they can show that they're selling something that's like new and alternative and like oh i've got the secret so it's it's you know it's hard to sort of navigate that Exactly. I'm fortunate that my mum's actually uh, 
she she's got a doctorate in nutrition and dietetics. So when we talk about like a lot of like these fad diets and things like that in terms of like paleo, she like I can ask her like okay what's the reality behind this? And like yeah. say for example uh, you'll see like someone can go on paleo, they can go on like a, like a ketogenic diet things like that, and they can actually have really positive results. Like and that's not necessarily because it's the best diet to have, but generally a lot of people going onto those diets. Um, had quite a poor diet before and so they're going to see results because they've just generally speaking made an improvement like like yeah. you know paleo might not necessarily be the best diet but it's probably better than what they were doing before that so there's not a lot of harm in them you know going onto one of those diets because at least they're being like people are more conscious about what they're eating so so there's good and bad to it where it's like okay maybe a certain diet isn't the best but at least someone's like giving themselves some limitations and a bit more conscious about what they're eating and they already are trying to, you know, cut out things that they shouldn't have or, you know, like not overeat or um, starting to introduce like other things that they should have in their diet. Yeah, because um, I've recently been hearing uh, Joey Diaz, the comedian, talks about it when he talks about diet because he is quite, he's a quite biggish dude. And he's talking about when he does like when he was doing certain diets, it was like kind of making him unhappy. So like he was eating, eating healthy foods, but being unhappy as well. And he kind of thought, felt like that was kind of like counterintuitive. So he would kind of like treat himself more often than try one of these diets, which kind of like blanket, it's almost like a blanket term that don't account for yeah. people's specific needs or. It, it, part of that's um, potentially a psychological thing as well. So I mentioned like my mom has um, did a doctorate in nutrition and dietetics. So, so her thesis was about, um, you know, like it's a relatively new area of study, but um, it, it was more like interestingly, like a psychological study, but about this idea of food addiction and like the relationship between, you know, uh, people's diets and like serotonin release and uh, uh, things like that. So there's also possibility, you know, someone like Joey Diaz as well, um, because he's quite like a large guy, probably has like, you know, potentially has like maybe some like like food addiction related problems where, you know, not having food is like affecting the serotonin release as well as, He's um, a known drug addict, like like quite like a serious drug yeah. addict. He's got a lot of interesting stories about that. So that's also potentially uh, affecting his body's uh, serotonin release. Exactly. Now, so, so like there's like one of the things of going onto a healthy diet is also like you know like the diet you're on beforehand can affect the diet that you're going onto. Yeah. Um, Which I think we're yeah. kind of like starting to well, like I'm starting to hear a little bit more about it. People. So so I mentioned before about like you know uh, like. Uh, being careful with like new emergent studies like there was one recently that i thought was interesting but it'll be interesting to see further studies following up on that but say for example the age at which uh someone is introduced sugar so you know like apparently there's a pretty major difference between someone's uh you know sugar cravings and sugar addiction later in life based on yep. the age at which they're actually introduced sugar i think it's around you know if, if a kid's introduced uh sugar at about the age of five they're less likely to have, you know, uh, like serious cravings and addictions to sugar um, later in life, rather than if they're introduced to sugar, you know, anything before that, like, you know, like one, two, three or four years old. Yeah. Yeah. So coming to the conclusion of the podcast, uh, is there any kind of scope outside of jujitsu that you are starting to build up? Is there any kind of like investment type of deals you kind of focus on as like a side gig um, somewhat? Um, nothing right now, but it's actually over the last, um, through like this COVID situation, um, especially just through the first lockdown and also seeing what happened in Melbourne, like there's a lot of people that had their livelihoods taken away from them. Um, and it was even a, a teammate of mine I was talking to recently just about this idea of just diversifying skill sets and things like that. 
Um, so it's something that I've spent a lot more time on recently and I'm, I, I'm just starting to explore now, but I don't have anything specific that I'd say that, you know, I, I've actually diversified into. That's probably at the moment, like that's the plan is to start looking more into those sort of things. Um, yeah, yeah. Like, like, so I don't really have an in-depth answer on that, but yeah, yeah. it's more about like, it is something that I'm starting to think about. I, I think you see like a lot of athletes um, in a lot of different sports that aren't thinking long-term um, and they potentially suffer the consequences for it. Like you can even, yeah, exactly. like, you know, you can talk about like, you know, uh, like, like, like Olympic gold medalist wrestler, Dave Schultz. And like, yeah. you know, he, you know, he, his long-term, his wrestling career um, took away a lot, a lot of opportunities for him. I think now he's doing okay. But I, I remember I, I read his biography and um, outside of, you know, competing, like there wasn't a lot of opportunities for um, American wrestlers at the time. Like, you know, they, they was pretty much just like, really low paying like uh you know uh wrestling gigs at the time at least um that were barely enough to live on um so yeah. so that so you know looking to try and make sure you've got those opportunities uh, later in life by uh looking into it earlier is probably not a bad idea for a lot of athletes yeah is there any kind of end goal in mind so like do you want to maybe one day have your own gym or have a whole series um, of I, uh debbie days and whatnot the, the, the goal is probably more or less the same as what it is now like um, getting into professional jujitsu, the goal was to be able to create, like have my, my jujitsu training be financially sustainable just so I could keep training. Um, so really long-term, it's going to be a similar thing where it's like, you know, I'm, I'm not competing. Um, therefore, you know, like, uh, you know, garnering less attention towards my own skill sets, but still putting myself in a position where I'm able to financially sustain just training jujitsu and training at the amount that I'd like to be. Yeah. I mean, just, well so I said. Just, just so I'm just enjoying my life. Yeah. Um, all right, Jeremy, chuck us in any social plugs and you got a DVD sure. instructional, don't you as well? Yeah. Yeah. So I just released my instructional on technically um, funny that we were talking about uh, leg block defense. So I released an instructional on technically looking specifically at that. So the idea behind it is looking at dedicated uh, leg lock escapes and positional escapes to leg entanglements. And the idea is with, uh, you know, the, the introduction of heel hooks and reaping uh, to the IBGS this year, um, this is a fantastic instructional for just anyone that is, you know, uh, just getting into leg locks early in like their jiu-jitsu career, like, you know, maybe a white or a blue belt, but also someone that's suddenly got to, you know, like kickstart their leg lock defense at like the black belt level. Um, yeah. So the idea here is that I want to teach, you know, both, a, both theory and, you know, uh, practical technique. So, so the idea is I'll show like step-by-step -step technique, but still teach the underlying theory behind what we're doing. So that way someone can integrate practical technique into their game immediately, but still have an idea of, uh, you know, what's actually happening so they can expand upon that long-term. Yeah. Sounds good. Where can we also find thank it? you to, uh, to scramble for, for sponsoring me and supporting me through uh, the, the lockdowns and things like that. And just being, uh, you know, just a great brand overall. Shout out to scramble uh, socials. <laughs> Where can we find you, Jeremy? Uh, yeah. So main way to catch me is on Instagram at Jeremy Paul Skinner. Um, I am on Facebook too, but I like, again, just under Jeremy Paul Skinner, but, but Instagram is the best place to catch me. All right. And there's instructionals. Where can we find the instructions as well? Yeah. Awesome. So I have the link on my profile uh, on Instagram, but also it's available at technically.com. Um, technically spelled uh, T-E-C-H-N-I-Q-L-Y. And they're also uh, available on Instagram as well. All right. Everyone need to check out Jeremy, get those DVDs as well. All right. Appreciate it, Jeremy. Awesome. Thank you. Thanks, Luke.